1: Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello there, welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Tom Marvin, one of the technical editors at Bike Radar and joining me today is our Senior Road Technical Editor, Warren Rossiter. How's it going, Warren?
0: Oh, good, thanks mate. And yourself?
1: Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, What are you up to at the moment? What have you been doing? I've... Just finished bike of the year, um,
0: which will, you know, the results will be out there fairly soon. I've been spending a lot of time on SRAM's new rival Axis, um, and come away really, really impressed. And then I've got a few, a few um, bikes under embargo, screwing away in my garage at the minute. Excellent,
1: yeah. How's um, how did bike of the year go? Is it a uh, is a big process this year as usual?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we did uh, it being twenty twenty one tested twenty one different bikes from you know, all genres, all price ranges. And um, yeah, it's fun. It's really interesting. Obviously very different this year. Not quite so many uh, uh, group rides and group discussions, as it were. You know, having having your post-ride discussions over Teams or Zoom is quite weird. But, you know, we kind of got there. We came up with a consensus finally.
1: And that's all, that's all coming out into May's issue of Cycling Plus, isn't it? And it'll be on bike radar at, in May at some point.
0: Yeah. I guess uh, look out for that because it will all be interesting stuff. Some there's some great bikes in there. Some surprises and uh, and I think a really really worthy winner.
1: Excellent. We were chatting pre-recording about um, some of the stuff we can't really talk about, but you've been on some cool little product launches today via via Zoom and via MS Teams. Yes. Yep. Yep. Been, been... So that's all all continuing for 2021,
0: 2022. New kit. yeah yeah. Some really really exciting stuff out there as well, but unfortunately I'm tied to a legally-binded NDA, so I can't really say anything about it. <laughs> um.
1: All will be, All revealed, will re- be revealed, um, revealed at some yeah. point soon. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Well, then, um, today we we thought we'd have a chat about um, some of the most influential bikes of, of recent years. Um, we kind of want to talk about what the most influential bikes of the past millennium, um, well, of the millennium, so heading back the last 21 years, um, really are in, in the world of road cycling. So, obviously, that's going to cover quite a few of the race bikes um, and also some other slightly more niche ones uh, that have come in more recent years, I guess. Um, and I guess the important thing, you know, talking about the number of race bikes is, is how influential road bike racing really is on the whole road bike market. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um,
0: you know, at the turn of, at the, turn of the millennium, um, it was of the ultimate kind of importance was, You know, what what the pros were riding really, really influenced what we were riding at the time and what, you know, and continue to do so. I think um, more recently, we have seen a bit of a shift probably away from that. You know, some of the most Mm -hmm. impressive and important launches over, if we take like the last 18 months, two years, you're looking at bikes like, you know, Cervelo's Caledonia, um, which is, uh, uh, it's a kind of, I mean, I think I've described it as a Cervelo that we should all ride rather than that we wish, you know, that we mm-hmm. wish to ride, you know, so, so it's not an S series, it's not an R series, it's not a, you know, it's not a super slammed pro bike, it's, um, it's a bike designed to sort of ride different surfaces, and, you know, it's still aero, it's still got all those, those key Cervelo elements, it's just, it's, it's something a little bit more versatile, and then if you look at, say, you know, mm-hmm. um, one of Specialized's biggest launches of the last, of the last year, you know, the Athos, building this ultimate lightweight bi- yeah. bike that, you know, smashes through the UCI barrier. And it's, but it's, it wasn't designed for pros. It was designed for, admittedly, people with rich, you know, rich people with deep pockets, but, but <laughs> you know, it, it was designed for the rest of us sort of thing. So I think there is, there's an element of, of things are shifting. Um, you know, and a lot of the really, really important launches um, and kind of innovation is coming in things like gravel, you know, which uh, obviously doesn't have, an established pro scene. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting times. But anyway, you know, looking yeah. back at, at, at the last couple of decades, you know, it is it is pro racing that's had a major influence and informed the bikes we ride now.
1: Uh, and I guess we'll, we'll, we'll kick off with a bike that, you know, okay, we have called this the most influential bikes of this millennium, but actually the bike we're going to talk about first um was first in that uh, released in in the 90s but i think we're sort of justifying its position in this list because it's first carbon bikes did come in after the year 2000 yeah. um and that's a, the giant tcr it's a bike we have talked about a number of times on the podcast because it is so influential so what was what was sort of the big step change that happened with the tcr
0: well i think you know if you go back to the, to that original concept of the tcr which of course was um uh, you know a partnership between giant and legendary British designer Mike Burrows, you know, he's he's the man behind behind um, the Lotus bike that Chris Boardman, you know, um, took took Olympic pursuit gold in '92, and he set the hour record on before they, you know, ruled that hour record out because the UCI, you know, banned it. You know, um, uh, Burrows has had lots and lots of run into the UCI over the years, um, and he. You know, weirdly the the original tci had, had run into the uci because because it brought in you know it's um tcr stands for total compact racing so it brought in a mm-hmm. compact frame shape which it, when you actually look at it it's a mountain bike cartel shape you know it's a a super sloping top tube a more compact frame you know you it gives you um it gives you a different kind of position on the bike. It gives you more manoeuvrability. It gives you, you know, it gives you all these elements. And the original thing with, with Giant's idea was that they didn't have to make as many sizes because you could size up differently mm-hmm. with stem and seat post changes uh, uh, and still keep this compact, light frame. Um Obviously, that's changed now. They've reverted to pretty much a normal size range, but that, that compact design still remains. And it was 2002 that they introduced the the TCR Composite. Um, mm mm-hmm. It was the first full full carbon TCR um, debuted at the Tour de France that, that year, um, and uh, Bullocky came second um, that year, riding it you know on its debut, which is pretty impressive. Um, you know, if yeah. you look back at the record books now, the, the you know the person that won that race isn't in the record books anymore. So you could argue that uh-huh. the TCR on its debut won the Tour. Um, then I mean that, that became available in two thousand and three for for a to buy. You know, immediately huge huge success um, and it's still in their range now you know 25 years later mm. the TCR is still the key bike in in Giants Road portfolio no doubt the latest generation one you know which I've been lucky enough to to spend plenty of time on on it when it launched is out of this world it's just you know they it's a sort of tech sort of force from from the way it's made from the you know um, every element of it the way it rides is out of this world you know and, and that's me talking as a as a Tcr owner of the previous generation um mm-hmm. which we have talked about on here before uh, you know and i've invested in inordinate amount on upgrading that bike to the very best it could be and then i ride the brand new one and go oh thanks john you've made that one redundant <laughs> <laughs> um, not that I'm ever going to, you know, not that I'm rid of it anytime soon. I'm still going to be riding it. But, you know, if you look at the people, you know, the teams that have ridden the TCR, you've got Onsay, T-Mobile, High Road, Rabobank, um, Alpesin, Sunweb, Team CCC, uh, and then riders, you know, Jan Ulrich, right. Zabel, Cavendish, Marianne Voss, Tom Dumoulin, Laurence Jalabert. You know, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a who's
1: who, yeah, isn't it, really? Yeah,
0: and and I think it, it, you can't underestimate the, the, the effect that that TCR had. When it arrived, you know, it on in the Peloton, it looked so, so different to everything else out there. Up until then, road bikes, whatever they were made of, be it steel, be it aluminium, you know, um, carbon, whatever, they, they were all based around that traditional double diamond shape, you know, a horizontal top tube, very, very traditional, even though it was kind of put an edge. And then this TCR of ours, and it's super slammed, it's super low, you know, and um, uh, you know one of the things that you know burrows was was big in you know is and still was big into aerodynamics that's that's a huge thing so the, so the key element of the tci was always at this big aero seat post and when you're talking about an era when no bikes were aero uh, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden it's like and i think that's what got the you know them um, the uci's ranker was like well is that an advantage they're they getting an advantage from you know and it seems mad today to talk about well it was only a seat post but you know, when when everything yeah. else you're resting in is like big fat round tubes and then all of a sudden you've got these kind of airfoils coming into it. it. It it was so, so radical, so different. And if you look at any new bike now, you know, you look at the, the suede of, of where the current bikes have gone with, their drop seat stays and everything else. The, the unifying factor is that sloping top tube. And mm-hmm. that's, that was Giant. You know, Giant did that. They they brought that and it literally has changed
1: the way bikes look the shape
0: of the, the way the road, the road bike, bike looks yeah, yeah. you know so, so and i guess that that sorry
1: that sort of ties back into that original sort of thing we were talking about in the introduction where you know these these modern bikes that are coming out now that maybe aren't so race bike inspired actually are still inspired by those that original tc yeah
0: completely completely yeah it, it just you know it changed the silhouette of what a road bike looks like and so it's you know mm. the influence there just can't really be underestimated
1: one of the things I've just noticed, I'm looking at sort of pictures of TCRs from from other years, and I, I think this is one of the original ones. It's, it's uh, with uh, one of the once-once-once riders, um, obviously in the Tour de France. And, you know, he's he's got his TCR, but it's, it's decked out with a tri-spoke front wheel, with a disc rear wheel, with TT aero bars. You know, there's not many, uh, you know, maybe times were different back then, but, you know, he's using his race road bike as a TT bike.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, it, 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 that, that compact frame shape offered such an advantage over you know, over traditional bikes, even traditional time bikes that, you know, why wouldn't you, you know, it was that sort of, you know, and, and those early bikes, it had, um, you, you effectively had an adjustable stem on the front and quite an interesting, you know, back when they were threaded headsets. Um, so you could, you could have it in your normal kind of racy position, but you could super, super slam it for, for you know, to get into ultra low time position as well. So it was a, you know, great looking silhouette. Also, pretty versatile for the time as well. You know, it's a mm. um, just a stunning piece of design, really.
1: And I guess if, if we're going to talk about, you know, mentioned there the, the aero seat post about, you know, bikes that really have shaped the future of road bikes and, and, and the current position, then the, the next bike that we sort of thought we should, really should talk about is the Cervelo Soloist, which, my understanding is basically the first proper real aero race bike.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely, you know, if we go back to 2002, which is when the Soloist debuted, you know that's a landmark year for Cervelo. Yeah, you know, up until then, uh, you know this bunch of crazy Canucks had been known for like really radical time trial and triathlon bikes. Um, but then they brought the Soloist out. It was a lightweight aluminium race bike, but it introduced the the concept of aero everywhere. Um, so all of the tube shapes were were all aerodynamic. You know, big deep aerodynamic down tube aerodynamic seat tube you know even things like the seat stays and the fork every single element was designed using proper aerodynamic tube shapes you know before this mm-hmm. you had seen like um, aerodynamic bikes mm-hmm. but they were kind of dreamt up by by designers and you know almost like design artists so you know if you go back to things like the, the Cinelli laser and, and things like that you know it was kind of a drawing board interpretation of what error should be. Whereas the difference with, um, was the engineering expertise that, that you know, Phil White and Gerald Freeman brought at Cervelo was they used proper aeronautically derived tube shapes and brought it to a bike, you know, um, but going back to the TCR, you can see some influence of the TCR in the soloist in just the silhouette, mm-hmm. you know, the sloping top tube, etc. Um, But the soloist has taken it just took aero ideas to their logical extreme for the time um, and stayed that way for a long, long time. You know, 2007, they debuted a the carbon soloist um, and, you know, incredibly successful bike for them as well. Um, and it became a core part of Cervelo's lineup, uh, which exists today, you know. There's a reason that Cervelo's aero road bikes are called the S-Series. It's the soloist series, you know. Oh, so okay, it, yeah. it all stems from that. Genius idea, you know, back in back in two thousand and two, to bring proper aerodynamic principles into the design in a really really serious
1: way. You know, one of the things I read about the, the Celus is that when they were developing the bike, you know, the, you know, brands were using, you know, if there was steel, then they may be using Reynolds tubing, and um, if they were aluminium frames, they were, you know, going to Eastern to yeah. get their tubes. Um, but because Cervelo wanted such uh, for the time, radical shapes. None of the traditional frame tube manufacturers were producing or extruding those tube shapes, so they ended up having to extrude their own their own tubes for this. Yeah, I mean,
0: you know, that's um that's one of those key things that 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 Cervelo have kind of always done. They've been they're such a kind of tech focused company that mm-hmm. barriers of things not seeming to exist didn't really become barriers to them, if you know what I mean. Uh, to the mm-hmm. extent that that I, I think, um, as a business model, that original incarnation of Cervello wasn't the smartest. You know, you could tell these guys were engineers and designers, and they weren't businessmen. Because, you know, uh, anybody who's been around as you know uh, in road bikes as long as I have will just remember that Cervelos were like hens' teeth. They were really difficult to mm-hmm. get hold of. There was a waiting list continuously for them, and that's simply because. They were so expensive to make and and uh, kind of difficult difficult to construct. So Savannah weren't making a huge amount of bikes. You know, they, they'd almost make a batch of bikes, sell them, and then when they got the money in, then they'd go and order some more. You know, things yeah. like forecasting and projections just didn't exist. It was kind of well, we need to make the best thing we can, so let's make the best thing we can, mm. and, and stretch our finances beyond that, and then we'll get the money back because. People will buy them. And they did. No, it, it you know, it it was good. You know, it's a different company today. Obviously, they're part of a much, mm-hmm. much larger group, you know, um, kind of high tech partners with Santa Cruz on the mountain box side. And um yeah. and so but it it's um it's really interesting when you go back to that original Sabato idea that these are two super smart engineers founded that company and came up with everything, and they were driven to make the best things they could. And mm-hmm. it's like business, business game secondary, which you know, yeah. Um, it, it's sort of um, it's refreshingly naive, I think. Is is, is what yeah. you could say about it?
1: Is it as as per the TCR actually, and, and with the soloists, you know, they're they're obviously radical bikes that really changed the face of road cycling, road road bike design. But were they actually? On the road, any any good? Those original ones? I know that you know, like the you know Cervelo's S series bikes are great. I know the TCR. I mean, I've ridden a couple of TCRs myself. Brilliant bikes. Were the original ones any good, or are they just different uh, in that they were interesting? I mean, uh, you know, when I rode some of
0: those early TCRs, um, I, I'd sort of come from a mountain bike background, and so they just felt familiar. You know, they mm-hmm. felt more chuckable, better handling. You know, they, it was just that bit more. And and you know, effectively, they were lighter. You know, you can go back to the aluminium ones. You know, they were just lighter than the traditional bikes and you know, road bikes that we'd been riding. You know, um, and, and the soloist. Um, you know, I can remember the first time riding, riding a soloist and just thinking, I oh God, this is fast." You know, because mm-hmm. it, it, I think there's a lot of skepticism, and there's still a lot of skepticism today. You know, two decades later about the whole how much does error really give you you know is it worth it you know i'm not a pro so why mm. should i care but when you go on those bikes and you just you know you got in the perfect conditions a straight bit of road a favorable wind and you know looking at looking down at you know we didn't have garments then you know looking down at my Vetta c15 wired computer mm. um and just going I- i'm going faster i'm not trying harder yeah. i'm going faster and then yeah so they did they you know it it made everybody sit up and take note, you know, um, and, and this is an era which kind of leads us into the, to the third bike I want to talk about. This is an era where not many people were talking about aero. Comfort was a dirty word. All anybody cared about then was lightweight stiffness mm-hmm. at the detriment of everything else. You know, we, we, it, which leads us into the you know the third bike I want to talk about, which is um, uh, Cannondale Super Six Evo. Now, mm-hmm. this Super Six was the bike that preceded it, um, and that was you know 2008, ridden by the likes of Liquid Gas and you know legendary, legendary bike. And I was a big fan of the Super Six, but it was part of that era of bikes where it was an arms race to build the lightest bike possible. So you had the, the likes of, mm-hmm. um, you know, brands like Stork, Stevens, Canyon, Schmulker, AX Lightness, uh, and plenty of others. So we're just aiming and aiming and aiming to try and make the lightest, stiffest thing possible. Um, but it was one thing that unified all of all of that, that era of bikes, the Super 6 included. Um, that, that ultimate light weightness uh, combined with stiffness made for just harsh riding bikes. You know, and this is yeah. in an era where, um the twenty three C tyre was the norm. In fact, twenty-three C was almost considered big. You know, there were still mm-hmm. lots of, you know, uh, lo- you know, lots of um lots of club races that I knew and especially time trialists who were saying, no, no, you've got to go twenty one. Twenty-one is the way to go. You know, it, that's the fastest tire. A twenty-one at 130 PSI, that's the fastest thing, you know. Which it seems madness mm-hmm. now, you know. Um so you're getting no additional comfort from from good tyres. And so you were just on these bikes that would rattle your fill-ins and, you know, make your eyes jitter continuously. Uh, but we kind of went, yeah, but it's super light, and it's amazingly stiff, but they were just uh, a little bit, oh, you know. But then came the Super 6 Evo. You know, that was 2011, and the genius thing that they had done there is that that it had got lighter, but mm-hmm. they brought in compliance, you know, and that Evo was—it's a milestone bike, super light, well, phenomenally light for its for its day, and it's still, you know, flyweight today. You know, I think they were getting some of their frames down um, when they when it came to the next generation before this current one, where things got a bit aero. Mm-hmm. You know, they were getting. Down in the seven hundred gram mark for for a frame, but right. but even that that original Evo, you know, that was light. It 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 was one of the lightest bikes out there. But they retained the brilliant Cannondale geometry, which makes for super fast, lightning fast handling bike. But it didn't beat you up. It introduced this mm-hmm. kind of compliant nature to it, you know. Cannondale, are, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, are, are like specialised and like other brands where they just bring in, you know, buzzwords to to describe what they're doing. So it's that whole yeah, ballistic carbon fibre, which they've never fully explained what it actually means and um, what it actually does. <laughs> but it does something, you know. So I, I'd come from riding these bikes that you were going, my god, it's so light, my god, it's so, this and this. But I'm not necessarily enjoying it, and then suddenly you jumped on the Evo and went, oh wow, this is just as responsive the handle is just as sharp but it's not beating me up i you know it's it's a it's a bike you can ride all day you know and um and it's worth you know thinking that that, that evo then it moved on to the evo 2 there was very few fundamental changes it was just the technology of carbon fiber moved on and so they just moved it on and you know and as late as, as 2019 you know um alberto I can never work out how to pronounce his name. Probably uh, Bet- Betiol, I think it is. Um, Italian rider at EF. He won Tour of Flanders mm-hmm. in 2019 on that that Evo, which is effectively the same as the original mm-hmm. design. And, and you got to think in 2019, the, the bikes around him were all aero and you know all these huge, great yeah. league advances. And and this that Evo still looks like a traditional bike. You know, it didn't yeah. follow the rules of, of what the TCR brought in. It wasn't sloping. It was round tubes, flat top tube. You know. Um, but still an amazing, amazing thing.
1: And what what was the context of of Cannondale bringing this bike to market? Was it, um, were they almost aiming it as sort of like an early endurance bike or was it still a pure racer's bike and they just decided that actually to go fast, you need some comfort in there? Was it targeted? Who was it targeted at? I
0: think, um, you know, I I can remember being on, uh, (laughs) on the launch of that original Evo, and and they were sort of saying that it had come from team rider feedback. Because you know, mm-hmm. their pro riders at the time loved the fact that bikes were getting so light. You know, uh, we got to talk. You know, when you talk about the lightness in that era, you got to think of like, um, uh, you know, just prior to that was when like Cannondale arrived at the at the Giro with a bike that would smash the UCI then UCI weight limit, and so as almost like a protest, they were gluing small weights onto the top tube to bring the bike up to weight. And, you know, and there's a rumor that the Giant TCR of the same era was also busting the UCI weight limit. And the rumor on that was that they were thinking about filling the frame with ice cubes when they were being weighed by the commissaires and then obviously the the ice would melt and run out Mm -hmm. and then they'd be left with this light bike. I I can't say that if that ever happened, but that's, (laughs) you know, that's a a kind of rumor that was out there. But, you know, and then, but when you're talking about that kind of flyweight era, you can't talk about it without the next bike I want to talk about, which is the cr one. Mm -hmm. Which then led into the addict, um, and you got to think back when that CR1 came out, which was 2000. And I think it's 2005. It was 2005, I think. Uh-huh. Um, you might might correct me on that. But the holy grail of any frame was to to get under a kilo, and then the CR1 yeah. arrived, and it was 900 grams, um, which is at that time was insane. You got to think at the time, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of the kind of carbon and aluminium bikes so we're in the pro peloton it wouldn't be unheard of for it to be double that you know as as a frame weight. It, it's just so it, this thing was out of this world groundbreaking um the difference with the cr1 as compared to the you know some of the brands i've already mentioned the likes of ax lightness and schmalker and these like super high-end carbon mm. manufacturers usually from germany um was the cr1 Brought that flyweight to the masses. They had their ultra yeah. high-end bikes. You know, I can remember um, at their shows uh, in that year. You know, Scott on their stand had a rather expensive, spectacular lightweight build of a CR1 um, that was just over four kilos as a complete bike. Wow, I mean, this mental
1: wow. today,
0: yeah. and it was even more mental then. Um, but yeah. the CR1, you know, you could get like a comp version with one hundred five on it. You know, so it brought that kind of flyweight idea to the masses for the first time um and then 2007 so not long after the CR1 they brought out the addict um now that 790 gram frame 330 gram fork and the top end build of that um had a complete weight of 5.9 kilos so you know mm-hmm. that that was a bike for the pros you know you think of that time it was, you know guys like david miller were riding Scots, and um it was illegal basically it, you know it was too light it was too light to race but we as punters could buy one now, mm-hmm. what well, I also think is really interesting on, on uh, the kind of the Scott, the Scott Ci One, Scott Addict, and going back to the, the Evo, um, there's one unifying factor there, and that's they're all engineered by by Peter Denk. Now, you know right, Peter okay. Denk, uh, you know runs a, a, a kind of engineering company at the minute, is is solely contracted to work with Specialized, and so you got. I was
1: going to say we've heard his name before in the pod. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, you know, um, if you think. he'd done 790 gram frame with the addict and then when he was working with Cannondale uh, later on on the Evo 2 that was sub 700 gram and at at that time it had the world's lightest fork on it 277 gram fork you know which today Mm -hmm. is is even is mental and then more recently a bike we've already mentioned here um, Specialized Athos you know the lightest Mm -hmm. ever production disc road bike that's that's Mr. Denk as well so um, you know this is a this is a man that that knows his way around carbon fibre, um, particularly mm. well. And, and, and you know, uh, Denker's done amazing things on the mountain bike side of things as well. You know, if you think things like Scott Spark and um, yeah, some of the things he did with Cannondale, I think he did was the Jekyll FSR something like that. You know, some of their like phenomenally light for for um, full suspension is is all him. Mm-hmm.
1: It's probably enough talking about about lightness so uh yeah let's move on i mean one thing i did want to ask sorry about the cr1 is that um so i just actually read uh, a review of yours from 2013 and you say how the bike the cr1 started out as a super like pro level race bike and over the years as a, as a model it, it, it progressed into something a little bit more sort of usable for the for the end for the end user yeah that? yeah
0: i think you know the cr1 made such a gigantic impact you know when it came out that the kind of model recognition of it is, is something you couldn't just... They could have effectively just discarded it when the Addict came. Um, but instead, they, they took the, the same principles of what made the CR1 so good, you know, so that the lightness, um, building a, a, a bit of compliance, even though it was quite a stiff bike, um, but the kind of drivetrain stiffness and torsional stiffness, which is a, a mark of any kind of Peter Dent bike. Um, and then when the Addict came along and kind of, you know, busted all its records... They just repositioned the CR1 um, as more of an endurance kind of bike. You know, it was still high mm-hmm. performance endurance, rather than sit up and beg relaxed. Um, yeah. But they kept that kind of light- lightweight characteristics, but just you know, touched up the stack a little bit, reduced the reach ever so slightly, just made it a more usable bike for for more people. And you know, some of those mm-hmm. um, some of those kind of second and third generation CR1s but really, really tremendously good bikes. And it's almost the way that that um, the latest bikes today have gone that way. You know, a lot of the kind of pro peloton level bikes that are around now, when you compare them to bikes from 20 years ago, they do have a bit more stack. They do have mm-hmm. a few millimeters less reach. It's almost kind of, I think, it's that whole um, comfort issue, not only have, refers to you know compliance you can build into the materials it's also about you know the body. It's about how you sit on a bike and if you are in that yeah. ultra slammed ultra aggressive position that's great if you're you know racing flat out for a day but if you've got to do it for three weeks you know it's going to bring some you know some aches and pains into into the equation so mm. um you have got to be comfortable to be
1: fast sort yeah of thing.
0: yeah exactly exactly yeah and then i think um but the next bike I you know I want to talk about is um it takes us back to Aero, but it's a much, much later generation of Aero. Um and that's uh mm-hmm. Specialised Venge Vias, which um might it's be one a, of the most striking very, Aero very bikes striking bike. It. And it might be a little bit sort of controversial because you could argue it didn't last as long as it should have done for the amount of kind of RD work that went into it. You know, it's a huge endeavor for for specialized. It was a kind of it was the bike that kind of debuted their whole new massive investment in R and D. You know, they they built a wind tunnel. Mm-hmm. They'd invested in composites engineering. They brought in some incredibly talented people and came up with this 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 kind of hugely holistic approach to aero. You know, prior to that, you know, even those those you know founding fathers of, of aero design, you know, guys like Cervelo, um, mm-hmm. they made frame sets, but. Then you had to go and pick some wheels and pick a bar and pick a stem. And, uh, you know, so it it was never, it was like our frame's really fast, but if you build it up with the wrong stuff, it's not going to be. And specialized yeah. pr- approach with the VIAs was full integration is the way to go. So the wheels that mm-hmm. were on the VIAs were designed for the VIAs. The handlebar and the stem and the seat post and everything was all just designed. That, that bike was conceived as a singular, you know, a, a singular you know a piece of equipment um uh, but then you go back to the original venge you know that was launched back in 2011 and it had a immediate impact you know it they it won manson remo um uh, uh matt Goss on its debut you know um but specialized with len talking about that like aero is everything and and mm-hmm. but the venge seemed to be it didn't quite go that full way, you know, it had most of the elements. And then when a VIAS they everything was integrated, you know. I was on the yeah. the, the original launch of the of the Vias, um, out in Morgan Hill and we did like a series of a series of tests. Like rode one day on the S-Works Superlight S-Works tarmac on a particularly hilly, lumpy course, you know, riding with power, riding with heart rate, and you know, set set course and then the next day we spent a day in the wind tunnel so the, the day after we fully recovered and then went out and did exactly the same loop um on the vias and mm-hmm. but we there were rules instigated like on the vias you and on the tarmac you had to ride with your hands on the hoods you couldn't go down into an aero tuck um on the tarmac we were wearing just normal special kit and um you know like mm-hmm. a prevail helmet and then when i we went on to the vias we were wearing the wind designed kit that was designed with the bias and a helmet that was designed with the bias riding right exactly the same position and um, uh, and I was significantly faster right. you know, uh, by multitudes of, of seconds now I think it, you know, it was a long time ago now but I think it was, it was almost like close to a minute over kind of right. 45, 50k but then there's the elements on the bike where, they, where everything had got integrated all cable route in, mm-hmm. went through the bars through the stem into the bike and everything and um, and it was an incredibly bold thing to do. And I know there'll be lots of um, mechanics out there that will talk about the nightmare of, of maintaining a bias because it was not an easy thing to do. Mm. You know, there, there were there was incredible complexities in, in that. Um, but it did show the way that when you fully integrate and you go into hidden you know, hidden cabling, et cetera, the advantages are there and they are huge. And if you look today, at mm-hmm. uh, not just aero road bikes, but any road bike, integration is the big goal, you know. And yeah. you got to think about when the Vias launched, you know, most people were still using cable, you know. There was no wireless uh, system sort of, of note out there. Most people were using rim brakes, so you had brake cables mm-hmm. to, to route, et cetera. So the, the idea of that Vias and everything they had to do to it to get it to what it was, just a massive undertaking and incredibly bold. You know, and the successor to the to the device came fairly quickly within the product cycle. You would imagine the vice would had a few more years, and it was a successful bike. Yeah. You know, it had lots and lots of wins. Um, but I do think it showed sort of talented designers around the world, and you know, lots of in, industrial designers and things that the advantages are there to be found. The the, the gains are there, mm-hmm. um, and it set a spark where a lot of the modern integrated bikes, you know, look at the likes of um, Orbea with the with the, the Orca Aero and the Orca OMX, the, the cable integration that they brought into to those bikes is not only clean and lean, it's also simple. Um, but things like that couldn't have happened without a truly bold experiment, almost. Um, an experiment that they made public from, from Specialized.
1: And was the, when it comes to riding the Venge, obviously, you know, it is fast. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of it, the, the third generation one. You know, it's very aero, it's got these deep wheels, it's got dropped uh, seat stays. Was it was it a comfortable, pleasant bike to ride? Com- Going back to the conversation yeah. you had with the CR1. Actually, the I mean, compared
0: to the original Venge, yeah, it was. You know, I, I mm-hmm. as I say, I rode it at launch, back-to-back with the with the Tarmac, and they felt similar. You know, mm-hmm. the you know the kind of ride quality was there. And I think you know, a lot of that's to mm-hmm. done with, you know, again, it's it's investment that specialiser made into things like body geometry. You know, their, their their saddles are some of the best in the business. And and things like the power yeah. saddle was kind of a key element of the of the bias. Um so your contact points on that bike were really, really good, you know. And I did have the benefit mm-hmm. of being out there and being professionally fitted for the bike before I ever put a pedal on it. Yeah, of um to be honest, it's that kind of you know going into going into the kind of BG fit system and getting getting set up properly on that bike is something I'll just recommend you know getting get a proper bike fit. Mm-hmm. It's just the easiest way to go faster f- uh, for less pain, you know, it, it, yeah. you know. I don't know; it's difficult at the minute. You know, I know most most um, bike fits just aren't available right now because we're in the middle of this this dreadful pandemic. But but once things do return to normality if you're kind of scratching around thinking you know I'd like to get a little bit better I'd like to be a little bit more comfortable it's not about buying a new bike it's about fitting the bike you've got mm. as best you can mm. you know it's it's so so worth it um
1: on a on a complete side note the was the the venge vice the the bike that had a collab with mclaren back in the day yeah i mean it was there yeah was yeah, some, yeah they did and would that make it almost like the first hyperbike some extent or one of the early super
0: you know yeah i guess five, i guess six it would three. you know the you know it's, it's kind of the r&d costs that must have gone into putting that bike together i don't think it ever really been seen in the bike mm. industry before um but it's that's something that that kind of specialized moved into pretty wholeheartedly you know around mm. that time which weirdly brings me on to the, to the next bike which i think is massively influential um and that's the Roubaix. this you know specialized Roubaix. Mm-hmm. um you know when i think about that bike i think it's the bike that defined endurance bikes it just did you know it, it's the bike that that said that comfort is no longer a dirty word you know mm-hmm. um and when you know when we're talking about about the rubai um the original idea behind it was it was aimed to give the benefits of a race racing machine you know so that's like pedaling efficiency frame stiffness low weight all the things that you get from modern carbon fiber but it introduced endurance geometry now prior to that kind of endurance or sporty bike whatever you want to call it those sorts of bikes had existed you know um uh, over here in the uk you might call them audax um in america they were called like century bikes but and Specialized had a, had a century bike. It was a Sequoia, you know. But what, mm-hmm. what they were um, were bikes with really elongated head tubes um, and short top tubes. And then you had these kind of short, upward-facing stems. So you ended up with a really, really upright, relaxed riding style. So when you wanted to, you know, get down and have some fun and, you know, do a little bit of sprinting on, it was just weird. It was tr- like trying to, Mm-hmm. sprint on a shopper it just it just just felt wrong now what specialised did with the rebate is they they said we don't need to go to that extreme we just need a little bit more consideration of the rider you know uh, and uh, so that the rebate blended that ratio position of the pro ranks with the comfort from geometry tweaks and from materials and from some of the innovations that they, you know, they did there. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was back in, you know, 2004 was the first Roubaix. Um, And, you know, the key elements of when they launched that bike back then was like, they, they just talked about it had the torsional stiffness of their race bike, but it brought in what, they were the first people to start talking about it and now it almost becomes a joke between, you know, any, Journalists writing about bikes, and that's vertical compliance. You know, now it's like, yeah, you know, in, in bike launch bingo, it's the it's the first on the list. It's the one thing that, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, laterally stiff, vertically compliant, oh, whatever. But, you know, they said it for a reason. That's because they had it, you know. Um, mm. And then, you know, going on to 2005, they introduced a, a lighter version of the the NS Works, um, and they signed up with, with Um, Take it on to 2006. Yeah, the Roubaix debuted at Roubaix, um, mm-hmm. and they used it in lots of other, you know, lots of other races that season. 2008: um, further iterations of it. Tom Boonen won Paris Roubaix on a prototype of the, the soon-to-be released 2009 model, you know. Um, and then 2009, Boonen wins again on the same Roubaix. Um, you're moving on to 2010 still on that same bike where um but they brought uh, some more revisions to it so it had so you know it's just a it's just a little bit more refiner. And in 2010 they had Boone and O'Grady and Cancellara you know three previous mm-hmm. paris Bay winners all riding a Bay. um so it's probably no surprise that you know they won that year as well you know Cancellara rode away from the rest of the field and so it's an incredible, it's the, an incredibly the, successful the, bike in pro racing, that most people yeah. don't consider as a pro racing bike. It's a
1: race bike. Twenty ten was was the year when when, when won, and, and people were suspecting it looked so good. He had a motor yeah. in, in his bike, yeah. but um, it, it was that the, that was the year. Did they put those um, Zerts uh, dampers in in the, in the back end
0: of it. Yeah, Zerts had been on the bike for a long, long time, but but that that model of huh. Zerts, it was rather than it was kind of an elastic insert into a full carbon construction, you effectively add holes through the seat stays which the Zerts sat in. Uh, and yep. they, I think the, the thing with the Zerts thing is, is it kind of, it kind of controlled what was already happening with the carbon. Because, because they'd effectively mm-hmm. created this kind of split seat stay and split fork legs, um, you ended up with a lot, lot more surface area where all the vib- vibrations come in from the road would have to travel before they reached, you know, okay. either, either your sit bones or your, or your, you know, your hands. Yeah. Um, and by putting the zerts in there, which effectively are like, you know, a super soft elastomer, a bit, of, you know, rubbery stuff, um, that helped absorb those high frequency vibrations all the quicker. So I always think about that that bike. Some really clever carbon It was a key point for it. Mm-hmm. The zerts almost seemed like a, an, you know an afterthought that did have a benefit, but wasn't the key benefit, if, you, if mm-hmm. you see what I mean. You know, if you think when they moved on to, um, like, the 2011 bike, um, which was made with McLaren, going back to the device, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, then you ended up with this kind of, uh, the, the SL4 model did, did lots and lots of really interesting stuff. 2013 was the SL4, and wins again, you know, and then, it, so this thing has just been a huge, huge success. And then the, the biggest jump was probably 2017 when they brought Future Shock. Yeah. You know, um, and with, you know, lots and lots of things have been talked about, Future Shock, uh, you know, on that score. Again, that was that was designed um, in conjunction with McLaren's um, Applied Technology Division. Um and that they had the CGR seat post on that. So that kind of zigzaggy shaped seat post with a ZERS mm-hmm. insert on it, you know. Um the the seat post clamped into the into the seat tube much, much lower down. So yeah, it effectively had this huge amount of free movement. Um and that thing was an incredibly active bike. You know, it just I mean, I you know, I I I had the the Project Black of that that bike for best part of the year, you know, both prior to the launch and after the launch. Mm-hmm. And, and still now there are certain you know, sort of local descents on some of the, the pretty poor back roads mm-hmm. know, near me, um, where my PB is still from that bike mm-hmm. because it just inspired so much confidence of you know just being able to just hammer downhill and not worry about the road surface.
1: And that's so that's it, got yeah. the the seatpost in the back and then that future shock being a twenty mil of of suspension effectively underneath. Yeah, the effectively, spen- yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, you know, and the, and the reason it just
0: descended so well is because the suspension being sort of above the line, basically, rather than under the head tube, it suspends you, not the bike. Mm. So the bike's not diving or pitching. Mm. You know, it, and so the, the front end handling, it handles like a tarmac, which is, mm. you know, a great handling bike. It's, it, it, you know, a, a really, really clever thing. And, you know, and that that bike, you know, that bike proved really, really successful, you know, um, on its debut, it was second at paris Bay yeah. um, with Stibar riding it. Um I I think Sagan was sixth in 2018 on it
1: as well. You know. Um, I mean, just looking at looking at a quick history of, of the Roubaix, you've got wins at the paris Roubaix in 08, 09. Uh you've got Cancellara won in 10 as well. Uh so 2012 and 2014 it won. Uh and then 2018 it's one as well so you know for a a bike that's literally named after a race it's it's success you know as one bike to win all of those races in the past 10 years or so Mm. is 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 incredible
0: it is you know it's an, 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 an exceptional thing and but take it away from racing completely you know it's the bike that defined endurance bikes
1: yeah, well, that's the other thing, isn't it? It's a bike that's both successful on the race course, but also actually yeah. is probably the bike that many riders should should be riding.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and I think it's sort of it's the one. It, it, it's a weird thing. It's a bike that defined a genre, mm. and plenty of people that I've spoken to in the past is like, "Oh, I'd never get a rebate, It's not racy enough." And you go, mm. hey, "It's won a Paris Roubaix <laughs> yeah. like, more times than it hasn't." So, <laughs> um, <laughs> how racy do you need it? You know, it's sort of, it, it's um it is such an influential bike. You know, there hasn't been an endurance bike made since since that original Roubaix that hasn't taken the principles that, that Specialized laid down, you know. I'm um, including Cannondale Synapse, Trek Domani, you know, um all of those bikes. Even, you know, we were talking about Cervelo earlier, the Cervelo Caledonia owes mm-hmm. a debt to, you know, the Roubaix. Um, Giant Defy, you know, it, it's a bike that just sort of, it defined a genre, but it transcends that genre, mm-hmm. you know. And and um, yeah, that's got me thinking. Actually, I still miss that Project Black Laird. Yeah. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, should we yeah. should we move on to the the, the the sort of the final bikes? And it, it, I guess it's not really there is a couple of bikes you really want to talk about, but we're, we're going to talk about more of a genre about gravel bikes. And I guess that links in quite nicely with the Roubaix. You know, Roubaix introduced a lot of comfort into the bike. It introduced future shock. Um, yeah. Which is you know, one of the very it, yeah, first. It, used, it introduced systems. much bigger tire
0: clearances, you know, mm. and so, you know, and if you think about specialized own gravel bike diverge, I mean, that owes more of a debt to the Roubaix than it does ever anything else in their portfolio. You know, mm. any of their mountain bikes, which you know, influenced lot of lots and lots of gravel bikes. Um, but yeah, you know, when it comes to gravel, and I do want to talk about quite a few different bikes here, mm. but I say and it rather controversially that the most influential bike in the gravel sphere is the GT Grade. Okay. Um and that's not because it was the first. Um cuz you you know it's easy to argue that things like um way way before you had the, like something like the the Salsa Fargo which mm-hmm. was a like a 29er with drop bars. Yeah. Um and built as a kind of extreme adventure bike, you know, I guess big, they call 2 it like monster tires. cross. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you know, and I loved that bike. I did a I did a SO24, so ride out for 24 hours, you know, leaving here and riding basically down to the Isle of White, getting a quick ferry across, riding in the lap of the mm-hmm. island, camping out for the night and riding home. Um, and loved that thing. It was brilliant. It was the first bike, first drop bar bike where I've been barreling down, you know, a, a road descent and saw a dirt track off to the side at, you know, and I'm hitting like 35, 40 mile an hour and going, I'm gonna go down there, see mm-hmm. what happens. And it was astonishingly good, brilliant thing. Um, but then you had something like um the Genesis quite a fair, you know, little, little, relatively small British company made this drop bar bike with big tire clearances and disc brakes and, you know, it, it, that's what it was. But then, you, you know, you could also argue that loads and loads of cyclocross bikes were ridden effectively as gravel in the off-season because what else are you going to do with them? Um, and then there's lots of kind of... Um, like these micro-brand endeavours, like all over the world. I mean, we had one fairly local to to where we're based, down in Southwest. So it was Avon Valley Cycles in Bath. Um, Mm. They had an own brand bike called the Caribou, um, where they basically used to pick up previous year's um, hardtail frames, steel hardtail frames, usually usually Kona, I think they were. Mm -hmm. Um, And they'd they'd kind of repaint them, rebadge them, stick big fat semi-slicks on them, 26-inch, semi slicks on it and drop bars and then you know sell sell them out of the shop you know we had a few of those over the years then used to rave about oh this is like the ultimate commuting bike because you can ride on a you know a byway a towpath a bridleway, and on a road and carry everything all your luggage and everything and then you think well actually yeah that was that was just a <laughs>
1: that's
0: a bike packing bike wasn't it yeah but, you know it was 20 years ago um and then you got to think you know like mad clubs like the you know the, the rough stuff fellowship you know in mm-hmm. the UK. Um, who for decades have just taken drop bar bikes to places they really shouldn't go. Um, so, so it's, it's always been something there. Um, so the reason I think the grade is that, is that most influential one. It was the first big brand bike that defined what the modern gravel bike should be. Okay. You know, it handles brilliantly both off-road and, and on, um, the frame was really cleverly designed to add compliance, you know, when, when you need it, you know, the, uh, their original idea of basically making the seat stays out of fiberglass, like a fishing rod. Mm-hmm. So they were incredibly bendy, you know, and, and you, you you effectively got, you yeah. know, if you think about the latest generation one where they refined it even further, you're getting close to almost like 30 mil of travel on the back. Right. Because it's so compliant, you know, yeah. um, on those those big, big vertical hits. Um, but the other thing I think is that that GG Grab was never wildly expensive. There were lots of hand-built, brands around the same time bringing out r- lovely gucci build gravel bikes for mm-hmm. you know to hit that kind of hipster market but then the grade came along and it started at you know around a thousand quid and then yeah. even the top end bike wasn't super bike money even though it was super bike capable so i think it proved to to the whole industry that there is a wider audience for gravel um and it it became a real thing it's not just a you know, it's a genuine subgenre of road cycling um, that also transcends as a subgenre, of almost a mountain biking. Yeah, that uh, it, it, it hasn't just been a passing fad; that it's, you know, really here to stay. You know, and then I think you know, there's one other bike, um, probably, a, and this is going back to Specialized again, um, which I think should be talked about for the same reasons, and that's the Specialized Tri Cross.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: You know, um, which some people will 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 remember. You know. It, uh, but it's a different sort of thing and I think of that as like the proto bikepacking bike, packing bike. Um, and, and it's a big influence you know Specialised do have a knack for seeing like potential niches um, in, in bike design as we mm-hmm. talked about with the Vias we talked about with the Roubaix you know the Tricross, it blended cross bike handling with touring bike practicality you know they and what they arrived at was almost the perfect bike for commuters mm-hmm. you know um, the tri holds its own on the road just isn't faced by jaunts onto towpaths or trails or whatever. Um, and as the bonus of you being able to load it up with racks and panniers and making it really practical but still fun. Yeah. And that's basically what a bikepacking bike is. So, um, yeah, I think when the dust more settles on on the whole gravel genre, then there probably will be other bikes that we'll, we'll talk about, you know, that kind of high-end, super-fast thing, stuff like the Open, Mm-hmm. which is obviously Gerard Rubin, going back to Cervelo. Yeah. You know, that's that's what Gerard did next. Um, you could argue Cannondale with a topstone lefty mm-hmm. effectively making a lightweight full suspension gravel bike, which is so, so capable. Yeah. You know, and then a the smaller end of things is the bike that you've been spending so much time on, you know, like Lauf, Lauf with the yeah. grit with the you know, with their, you know, really innovative fork. So, you know, maybe we have visited this in, you know, another five years or so then, then, when the dust is more settled and we see where gravel bikes eventually end up, there'll, mm. there'll be others to add to that list. But I do go back to saying, you know, GT grade, specialized tri-cross, yeah, they defined what we know as gravel today.
1: Could, could we fast... throw, I guess the Cannondale slate into that as well with the uh, with the <laughs> yeah. Older. I mean, this
0: yeah. Uh, I mean, the slate obviously was a bit of a it
1: was almost an oddball dead end. bike, wasn't it? Back yeah, in the it was day.
0: almost a, almost a bit of a dead end for for Cannondale. But you know, I love that bike. I mm. my own one. But and what I love about that bike is. It seems to me as a bike that, you know, the, the engineering team at, at Cannondale, um, who I've obviously known for a long, long time, they're all riders and they're all so, so into it. And when they they actually showed the, the Slate um, at the launch of the Super 6 Evo 2. Okay. Going back to another bike we've been <laughs> talking about. And I was talking to, you know, a couple of the guys there and, and you know, when they just sort of wheeled it out from a van and said, hey, look, we've got this as well. Not officially launching it, but have a look. And I was kind of, that is brilliant. I love that. That's amazing. I, I get me what I want to try it sort of thing. And then chatting to them, you know, this was after like a day's riding in, you know, in the Austrian mountains with them. So it was at the bar when they're they're you know a little bit more relaxed, say, than than being on
1: mm.
0: <laughs> being on presentation duty. And I was trying to get down to the to the real core reason behind the slate and they said well we've made the bike we really want to ride yeah and i think that's a fantastic justification for making anything you know um i think once the commercial side of things got involved and went this bike's really really expensive you know it's got a it's a 1200 pound carbon fork on an aluminium frame it's going Mm -hmm. to be a really really expensive bike and that was the big problem with the slate it was just so expensive initially that it's A tough sell to go. Well, it's a three and a half thousand pound bike, you go, Yeah, it's aluminium, yeah, you know, which I think is more accepted in the mountain bike world, yeah. Um, yeah. but in road in road cycling, they're kind of emerging gravel scene, they're like, What? It's got to be carbon or at least titanium and mm-hmm. like, that sort of money, and so it's always gonna be a tough sell for them, but yeah, don't underestimate how good, how much fun that bike is, mm-hmm. you know. I was, um, talking about some of the bikes that I've got under embargo in my garage, I was, I was, um, fiddling around setting them up yesterday, and then it's kind of peeking over at my slate thinking I need to do something with that I need to uh-huh. you know I, I need to make a few updates on that so at the minute it's got you know and this is talking about you know the slate as an emerging bike you know it's it's got a really roady setup on it you know even though it's a stock pretty much stock bike it's mm-hmm. got fifty two thirty six chain set and 11 right. cassette on it so you know that's fast road gearing nowadays yeah so yeah. I'm looking at it going I need to make that more off-roady I definitely and it needs you know it's got routing for a dropper which is way ahead of is me it go yeah so i need to put a dropper on it as well yeah I, and then start taking it out and getting as on it as i did when i first had it you know mm. um because i still think there's a lot a lot going for that bike it's still a yeah. lot of fun so you know that's a recommendation for anybody listening if you want to if you want a really fun piece of uh gravel riding try and find a good second hand slate because you won't be disappointed yeah they looked wicked as well mm.
1: yeah. okay well um I think we will we will wrap it up. One, one thing we haven't talked about, and maybe it's telling, maybe it's just because it's way too emerging now and, and maybe it's something actually that'd be worth having a podcast about in the future is is e-road bikes. Um there's loads of different sort of systems on the market, you know, with uh BB driven, hub driven, all that sort of stuff. And I know you've ridden quite a few, but um and I've only I've ridden one or two, but not as not as many. Um Without, with a risk of extending this into uh, hours and hours of, of our listeners' time, very quickly, is there, is there anything that really stands out in this completely new field of road bikes? Oof. I think if you're talking pure road,
0: um, specialised the turbo again, yeah, yeah, they, you know, Turbo Crio SL, just astonishingly efficient, right, and light, and does everything, you know, and I know, you know, um, you guys have been on the mountain bike side, I've been trying out that, that, um, that new TurboTech on a, on yeah. a mountain bike. You know, I was talking to, you know, one of our, one of our joint friends, Russ photographer. The oh, yeah, he's, yeah. he's got, he's got one and yeah. he's completely blown away from, with it. Mm. You know, and I can understand why, you know, that, that it, it's just amazing, amazing technology, but I still think on, on the whole E road thing, it's a, it's a brilliant sub genre, you know, it's a, just a great equalizer. It'll keep you riding, you know, into your old age. It's just, they're, they're just, and they're fun. I mean, mm-hmm. down to it, they're fun. But where I think the big growth and the big way that I, I think things should be going on on Drop Bar E is gravel. Mm-hmm. I am having so much fun on E gravel bikes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I've got, I've got a few here right now because I'm working on a, I'm working on a, on a feature. Sort of comparing quite a few of them. Okay. Um, there's a couple that I've got in there that again are under embargo, um, which I'm desperate to start talking about. Um, and, and you have the two sides of things. You have something with, say, e-bike motion, or um, which is a hub-based system, or Fazua, You know, which are both kind of they're all about lightweight, sort of low assistance, mm-hmm. um, but really good, really, really good, just for you know the means of traction. But going back to Canada, you know, I've got a Topstone Lefty Neo chooses Bosch and it's the big you know performance line Bosch motor so it's you know it's got mountain bike levels of, of power and torque but without the weight mm-hmm. and that thing is just an absolute right it's just it's so much fun yeah just stupid stupid amounts of fun and you know so I think the whole whole e-road thing is like it's like a, I just say people don't knock it until you've tried it sort of.
1: yeah well, I think we'll probably have to um <clears throat> We'll have to do some sort of pod on that down the line in that case.
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah, we should reconvene in, in you know, four to six weeks once I've got through this latest draft yeah. and I've I've put this feature together on them. Maybe I'll even invite you to come over and ride them with me on on the plane.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. We're good. Okay, well, on that note, um, we are bang on an hour in, which I think is spot on, actually. I think that's been a really, really insightful, really interesting chat, actually, I've, um yeah i've personally sort of learned a lot and really enjoyed that so thanks warren that's that's appreciated um yeah but thank you very much for listening to the podcast and um, don't forget to subscribe um because then they'll get beamed straight to your listening device on a weekly basis uh, and and share it with anyone else who you think might be interested but um yeah once again thank you very much warren that was great thanks for uh, inviting me tom it's always it's always good to nerd out about things i like 100 yeah and we'll we'll do it again <laughs> soon all right thanks very much and goodbye yeah, mate. thank you for listening to the bike radar podcast if you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling check out bikeradar.com.